Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Peter Matis is a recovering venture capitalist and founder of the Conscious Business Institute. His organization addresses today's global grand challenges by helping top executives in Fortune 100 companies, such as Intel, BMW, and Siemens, create careers that are deeply fulfilling and successful. Peter, thank you so much for being here and welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thank you, Marianne. It's wonderful to be here. Peter, my first and most favorite question is, how did you become such a wonderful force for good in the world? What happened in your life that put you on this path? Was it pain or pleasure? <laughs> um, I think a little bit of both, but mostly driven by pain, actually, because I was in the business world. I can still remember sitting in my Munich office, looking down um, Maximilian Street and asking myself, my God, isn't there a better way to work? And as I um, looked at organizations all around the world, actually, uh, for investment purposes um, and asking many of the employees and leaders that we worked with, what is it that you really want to do with your life? In a quiet moment, many of them told me it, it would be really something completely different. I would like to open a restaurant in Côte d'Azur, for example. I would like to travel the world on a sailboat or something. And so as an investor, it was always the question, how much money are we investing in organizations where only really few percent of the people are fully engaged? And if you look at the statistics gallop, you can you can see that that's actually the case, that only very few are engaged. Uh, I was one of them. I was always successful. But um, underneath the surface, when I put my head on the pillow at night, I was asking the question, isn't there a way where I can work with more fulfillment and purpose? Um, at the same time, I saw that a few people in our world, maybe 5%, maybe 10% of the people are fully engaged, fully motivated, fully on purpose, and usually extremely successful at that. Um, so I wanted to become one of them. And that pain um, that I felt inside of me kind of drove me to search for a different way. Um, and um, it took me several years, but at some point in time, um, it was in 2004, I sat on a plane from New York to New Jersey uh, in, from New Jersey to, to North Carolina to do a workshop, I dozed by the window early in the morning at six o'clock and I had this insight about the Conscious Business Institute. I saw the name in front of my eyes, never heard it before, but knew at that point that that's really what I want to do with my life. Uh, it hit me like a sledgehammer in the morning at six o'clock and, and I was wide awake, wrote down a bunch of stuff that came to me and then said, this is what I want to do. So that's kind of the beginning of the journey where I then started the Institute. Wow. <laughs> Wonderful. I remember how uh, we were uh, having our conversations uh, in California. I was still live there on, on a similar topic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have developed your own model for systemic organizational change. Can you take our audience through the five core modules of, of your model? Yes. Um, again, I, I looked at hundreds of organizations as an investor and then after that as well. And again, I found that really most organizations are run in a very dysfunctional way, which you can see um, in the statistics. 
Um, so I came to the point where I really asked the question, what would be a conscious business? What would be an organization that would be truly inspiring, where people wanted to work, where they're fully engaged, where teams, teams flourish together, where they have a common purpose and, and the finances are good as well. And what uh, came to me as a model, which we are now using, is really an integral model that's very similar to what Ken Wilber has developed, but maybe a little bit uh, more practical and easy to apply. Um, so if, if you imagine uh, a pie in front of you and cut that pie into four, four, four big quadrants, um, these four quadrants need to be fulfilled in order to uh, create an, uh, a, an inspiring organization. And just bear with me here as I lead you through this. If you imagine working in an organization where you can be yourself, where you can show up, where you can be authentic, where you can express your gifts and talents, your full authenticity, uh, where you don't need to be afraid, where you basically can show up fully and self-express yourself. That's a deep human need that we all have. Um, that's the first quadrant. The second quadrant that we fulfill then is if we then can connect to other people, if we can create teams where people actually collaborate instead of compete with each other, uh, where they maybe even share a vacation together, um, where they're able to deal with conflicts in a more life-giving way maybe, so that we create teams where people actually want to work with each other because, again, it fulfills the human need for connection that we all have. Then the third quadrant is if we can then make a difference together, if we can build a purpose-driven organization, because again, a human need is to have a common purpose, to fulfill a purpose, to make a difference in the world. And then the fourth quadrant is to be sustained, financially sustained, meaning that we make money in order to have a good living. If you imagine these four quadrants being fulfilled in your life or in an organization, you'll find that there's really no reason to leave the organization because it, it's not about business, it's about human needs. If those human needs are fulfilled, there's really no reason we want to leave. The problem that we see is that most organizations focus on the bottom right quadrant in our case, if you have the, the image in front of your mind there, which is uh, to sustain profits and margins. And although they might do leadership development, many have a mission or a purpose, many do team development, but when something happens in the world, when there's a finance crisis, when a big client breaks away, uh, most people fall back to the lower right quadrant. And with that, the other quadrants are empty. And if I, as an employee, would see that in my leader, in, in, my, in the management of a company, that they focus on the margins and, and profits, they basically tell me, I'm not caring about you, I'm caring about money. And with that, the people need to take care about themselves and can't take care of the company, really. So with that, the entire model breaks apart. So the question becomes, how can we build organizations that fulfill these four quadrants and keep them alive even in challenging situations? And what is the leadership model that is necessary, the conscious leadership or authentic leadership, that, however you want to call it, to build these four quadrants and to keep them alive uh, even when there's not a nice weather situation around in the organization? So that's the approach in, in a nutshell. Wow. So how do you actually apply that model when you go, let's say you go to BMW or, or Intel or Cisco, uh, what, what do you find and how, how do they receive that and how long does it take? How do you really apply that in the organization? Yeah, it really depends on the organization. Many, many of the larger organizations, they don't care about conscious business. They care about the problems that they have. They want to attract new talents. They want to be more effective. They want to build better teams. Um, so that's 
obviously what we can address with this model uh, very effectively. And then, uh, for example, we are working with a BMW subsidiary of about 500 people now. They are really, the CEO is really open to saying, no, we want to use this model. We want to take everybody in our company through this model so, so that we can transform the organization. So we see more and more companies realizing that we need a holistic model in order to create that transformation that we really need. So with some organizations, we just go in and create something uh, that works for them. We pick them up where they are and we create workshops or we create events that, that work for them. The typical approach that we have, for example, with this BMW subsidiary that I just mentioned, is that we go in, we oftentimes do a culture assessment of where an organization stands in those four quadrants and this leadership paradigm, in those five identities, as we call them. Uh, oftentimes we do that together with uh, University of Berkeley so that it's academically vetted. Um, the second step would be to go in and actually deliver these programs that we have in a step-by-step -step structured way to parts of the team or the entire team. The way we do that is in an online offline way that we have developed, which keeps approximately 96% of the people involved across the entire journey. And then we take them through the, the main modules, the main three modules in this case of our approach um, over a period of approximately three months per module. So the whole program can take either three months if people want to just do one module or can take an entire year. And then we measure again and see how has the culture changed. Um, so in this way, it becomes an approach. This is really what we've been asked to deliver is A, it's scalable for large organizations, uh, B, it is measurable, and C, it becomes manageable. So when you imagine being in an organization, a leader has an SAP system, for example, and they know exactly how much money is in the bank, they know exactly how many people are working there, know exactly what's in the warehouse, but they have no idea what the people are thinking and feeling. So we are trying to put this measurability and manageability into human resources, into building uh, inspiring cultures. I'm gonna stop here because <laughs> that's a mouthful. Right. Yeah. So I'm I'm asking actually maybe we should go back to um, to to early stage investments to uh, young companies. Mm -hmm. Because most of our audience are investors and company builders. And uh, so if they would like to apply this model in building sustainable organizations from the very beginning, how would they go about that? How, how could your model be applied in this context? And at what point in the development of a startup organization would you uh, begin to do the work? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, we're we're actually engaging with a couple of companies right now that are very much at the get go very early on, and uh, they realize, and I think this is a very good approach to embrace this model from the get go would be ideal. So to focus on all these four quadrants and about developing leadership and coherence in in the organization from step one. Yeah. So what we oftentimes do in this case is just start. Uh, working on an individual level, coaching program or just small workshops with with the core team, with a with a few individuals that start the organization, yeah, so that they can implement this model from the get go, but also live and and breathe this model as they start building the organization. And then we have certain touch points along the way 
to assess how they're doing uh, as they bring more people on. Uh, we, we onboard them with the same program, with the same model, so that everybody breathes and, and lives the same values, the same mindset, the same methodologies. So it becomes an approach that as the company grows, can infuse, can be infused into the organization as people come on board. So it starts building a coherent culture from the get go. Can you give a few examples or one example too? <clears throat> yeah, um, for, for example, there's there's one organization that we've worked with. They were about, uh, they were fairly small. They had a few people were making about close to a million in revenues. Uh, and they were trying to grow and it didn't really work. Um, so we came in and started working with the CEO uh, and with two other people, actually the, the office administration lady and uh, the marketing head. So just three people and we took them through this program on an individual basis, basically in, in individual coaching sessions. And uh, that was it. And as we, as we spoke to them approximately 18 months later, as we observed the company growing, they said they've grown to, um, to bookings of $7 million. Um, because the organizational blueprint has had changed. The CEO actually was able to bring on a COO, which he tried to do it for a long time and couldn't do it. But by him becoming more conscious and aware of his personality, of his deficiencies, all these kind of things and starting to own it, he was able to bring this person in. Yeah, the office manager became very strong. He actually actually became the right hand person for the CEO. So the entire dynamic of the company changed um, as they became more conscious and aware of what was really happening below the surface through our programs. And as a as a consequence, uh, the company grew pretty much sevenfold within within a couple of years. Wonderful. So in terms of um, the, the individual assessments and the culture assessments, can you say something with respect to the tools? You mentioned Berkeley University. What kind of tools are you applying to do the assessment? Um, yeah, we are assessing according to these, to these quadrants so that we have a model that you know exactly the quadrants where you stand and then you have a, have a program um, intervention that you can use in order to improve those things. So basically what we've developed is we've developed a set of questions um, to, to, that can be posed to, to a leader in person or we can, we can take an organi entire organization through this assessment so that then they become, become a clear idea of where the company stands in these five identities, self-leadership, team leadership, purpose culture, financial processes, all those kind of things and leadership. Yeah, so in, in communication with Berkeley or in collaboration with Berkeley, this um, questionnaire has been academically vetted so that we really compare apples with apples and not apples with pears and just put some questions out that might not be hitting the spot there. Um, and so if larger organizations want to do that, or um, then, then we bring in Berkeley and they actually conduct the assessment, they measure the progress, they, we keep them involved, and then oftentimes we uh, we we'll do case studies around that organization so that there's a publication effect as well. That's the, that's the measuring aspect of it. Wonderful. Can, can you um, give us some titles of some papers that were published on this so that people not can yet, 
not yet oh, no okay okay, <laughs> okay so um... we're in the process of this but we've we've just developed this partnership earlier this year and we're taking some companies through it so oh, I see. wonderful okay so we'll need to keep our ears and eyes open so please let us know um when um well, maybe maybe you could refer to some books because uh, you you've authored several articles and books where people could go um, and read about this. Yeah, I th I think the best way would be to go on our website or just sign up to our newsletter because we always publish articles around building a purpose-driven culture, about leadership, about studies that we we really find intriguing about human personal development, but also business development. Um, so the best thing would be to go our website on consciousbusinessinstitute.com and just sign up to our newsletter or look at our resource section. Oh, okay, great. So yeah, mm -hmm. that will be uh, put down in the podcast. So consciousbusinessinstitute.com, is it? Right, mm -hmm. not org. Com. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. One word, Conscious Business uh, Institute. Yeah, let's go slowly over to the exponential tech era. What... Uh, you are German, <laughs> you care about the environment like most Germans do. Uh, <laughs> so that's one of the big, great challenges that we have. But um, the exponential technology is, is coming. And uh, what is your take on it? Uh, because that's obviously disrupting businesses as well. And how can you, with your approach, um, address that, you know, that, you know, the fear that is associated with it, fear of losing your privacy, fear of uh, uh, having your boss uh, look over your shoulder what you're doing. How is that affecting uh, organizations, individuals, people, cultures, and um, how do you address that in your model? Yeah. That's that's a very good question. It's, it's kind of a big question because it's not only about the tech area, but but about any fundamental change that we are seeing in the world, which can uproot the existing system. Uh, akin to developing the atomic bomb, it's just uh, something that happens. The nuclear um, nuclear stuff that we've developed posed some opportunities, but also some threats. And the same thing is happening here is that the development of the technologies is posing a huge opportunity, but also a tremendous amount of threats with that. So it's kind of proportional in both directions. And it comes back to us how we will actually make use of it. And uh, in, in our human culture, you can see that there are always some people who make very positive use of it and other people who, who go the other way and abuse the system or abuse these new technologies. So um, I see it as a huge opportunity because we need to transform our existing systems. The way we operate in this world is simply not sustainable anymore. It's not sustainable on a global level, which sees it on an environmental impact. It's not sustainable for organizations because the people are burning out and it's not sustainable on an individual level because of the high uh, dissatisfaction, diseases increasing, stress increasing, all these kind of things. So our existing systems are done with increasing populations with increasing speed all of these kind of things we cannot use the old systems anymore we cannot simply in, uh, in get involved in change because it's first order change that really doesn't make the difference we need to get into second order change and i believe that the technologies provide an opportunity to um, to foster the second second order change where we really change our mindset around how we operate in this world Impact investing is one part of that, for example, or integral investing. 
Um, so I see the huge opportunity. And at the same time, we need to be extremely cautious about um, how we practice these opportunities. I think the United States is, is a little kid in the playground in that way and oftentimes a little bit naive when it comes to privacy and those kind of things. So I'm very curious where we are, where we are headed. What we do in our programs is create a the awareness of what really happens so that people are a little bit more awake and conscious when they make decisions and the impact that the, those decisions might have rather than just following the money. The second thing that we do in our programs is uh, very strongly how to operate with fear. Um, I believe our world is really a classroom for overcoming fear here because it's it's for us to grow up. It doesn't matter whether we do business or race a car or do whatever. It's really growing up so that we can overcome fear or confront fear. So one part of our program is really look at our out of power behaviors, we call it, when we operate from fear or fantasy. And when we create a ripple effect in our world that's not positive for ourselves or for the people around us when we lead from fear or when we are in change situations and operate from fear. So to become more resilient, to become um, better able to recover from, from stressful situations so that we can stay more centered and make more empowered decision, decisions and more positive decisions going forward. Fear. That's uh, one of the most important uh, feelings that uh, we have. Can you say something to that? How do you help people address fear? And how do you know? How do you know that you have succeeded? Yeah, maybe the first thing to address is how do we know when we have it? Because oftentimes we operate and we just go down the street and we just do things and and we are not aware that we're coming from fear. So the first thing that needs to happen is to shine light on it and, and become aware that we are actually operating from fear or fantasy, which I believe is the same thing. Um, so you cannot fight fear, I believe, but you can just turn the light on and become conscious around it when we operate that way. So whenever we feel frustration, whenever we push energy, whenever we feel that there's a scarcity, running out of time, I need more money, I need more love, all those kind of things. We are essentially operating from fear. Um, so that would be a lot of time, basically. Yeah. So that's the first thing is to realize that we are not in our authentic power when we operate from that place, but that we are basically trying to manipulate the situation because we want to get out of it. And as we manipulate the situation, when we are in fear, we usually create stress and struggle. So the first step, which is really 50% of the way, is to become conscious about it and accountable for our contribution to what to the world if we operate from that point. Yeah. And the second step would be to become more aware of our typical behavior from fear. We all exhibit a typical behavior and then uh, maybe stop making decisions that, that during that time because the decisions from fear will usually have a negative ripple effect and become aware and say, you know, I can't make that decision right now. Can I get back to you tomorrow? So that we can over time become come back to neutral with mindfulness practices, with certain exercises that we have. And, and that's key because um, having been <laughs> on a personal growth um, 
uh, train uh, for decades now. I know that one thing is to decide to change something and the other is to really go about and, and really change it so that you really do the right thing at the right time. And of course, uh, feelings uh, very often don't allow that. So how do you change behavior? So becoming a, conscious of it is one thing. So you and I talk about this and, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a way. That's amazing. But next time the thing shows up, uh, here you go. The, the behavior shows up again. So what kind of practices do you actually recommend that help people move away from the behavior? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, <laughs> you're very familiar with that from your own journey a bit, <laughs> Mariana. We've talked I'm about. I'm in the middle of times. it, my friend. <laughs> Always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Before I dive into the practices, though, I think it's it's really important to realize that um, it it re just requires one mindset, the mind shift. Um, the Dalai Lama says any conflict that we have can be solved with one. There's one thing missing that we don't see that would solve the conflict. So the same is true for any fear. Any fear is just a story that comes up because we've made something up in our mind. It's not real. But there's one mindset shift that we can do that would totally eliminate that fear. Yeah. So let's just imagine one of the big ones that we have here. If you consider being um, the, the oneness um, concept so that we are being part of something bigger here, which I've experienced in person and you too, I believe so. If we can just remember in that moment that we're really part of something bigger and that there's an interconnection here with something much higher than ourselves and that's what's being put in front of us is not, oh, I need to freak out, I need to make money, I need to survive here, but it's, it's okay in the bigger picture. Um, this mindset, if we can really step into that, you would notice that it could totally eliminate that fear. Yeah, so again, this is why the second order change is so important. If we are staying in, we just want to make a change here, impact investing, all those kind of things. I don't believe we're going to get anywhere because change is not going to make a big difference. It's going to improve an existing system by a little bit. But change always comes from uh, the first order mindset, which is from the same thinking that created the problem. So we might improve an organization a little bit or we might improve investing a little bit. But it's not going to make the transformation happen that we want to see. For transformation to happen, we need to have a second order um, change, as they call it in systems thinking, which requires a different consciousness. A different consciousness, as I just said, maybe that we are interconnected. Yeah, that would fundamentally change everything. So the practices that I have, back to your questions, are, are quite manifold, actually. First of all, I, I sit every morning and, and have my breathing and my meditation practice to try to reconnect to that, try to check in with my emotions, my feelings, but also connect to that higher uh, perspective. Um, the second practice that I have is spend time in nature, for example, to connect to something higher, but also back to myself. Uh, another practice would be to use our own tools that we use in our programs in critical situations. So when I feel that I'm freaking out about something, when I feel a conflict with a person to sit back and say, what, which tools can I use from our own um, um, methodologies that would help the situation? Yeah, so I can name a few more, but th those are just three I want to throw out here. Yes, thank you. I, uh, that's also one of the questions that I have. What is your own personal practice? 
So mm-hmm. how, in your perspective, uh, I mean, <laughs> as a psychologist, trained psychologist at that, I know that transformation takes a long time. Unfortunately, with human beings, that's what it takes. And we all know those of us who are familiar with kin- the children or have children know how long it takes to grow a human being um, and get mm-hmm. individuals to a different mindset particularly mm-hmm. if they're not aware of it or don't work at it to, you know, consciously to transform it. So mm-hmm. once people decide from your perspective, uh, and now coming back to organizations, once people decide that they really want to make a shift, because uh, one, one thing is to intellectually see clearly that, oh, yeah, I do have this problem. And the other is to get yourself to get your butt on the cushion every morning, morning or evening or whatever. <laughs> And do go through the moves and uh, realize that you are not your thoughts, you are having thoughts. Mm-hmm. How, uh, from your exper- experience, how long does it take to get that, to get that transformation going? Uh, it can go pretty quickly. I mean, transformation can happen in a blink. If you look at um, the 9-11 events, um, there's a plane flying into a skyscraper and suddenly people come out of it and leave their leave, leave their long-term wife they leave their jobs they leave all kinds of things and and change their lives around so it can happen very quickly but we oftentimes don't want to happen that have have it happen that way <laughs> with a plane flying into a skyscraper um, so transformation can happen rather quickly um, if you look at some things they've they found for example if you look at Richard Davidson's research, um, he has found that if we want to become more grateful, for example, that that could be a transformation, how we see the world in terms of gratitude. Um, it can maybe just after seven hours of meditation. So a few weeks of meditation, you see different brain patterns evolve. Yeah. So if we can do this practice, the practice itself is not the problem. It's it's getting our, our butt on the pillow and actually doing it, committing to that. But if we do that for a few weeks, we will see changes. I, for example, do um, one of Joe Dispenza's meditations, which I really like. And since I've, I've, every time I do it, I feel a difference. And as I do it more often, I get back into that space. So that's something I can truly recommend to just listen to those meditations every day. Can you repeat the name again and uh, where people uh, can doc- find it? Yeah, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called The Placebo and other books about how we shape our reality and he has meditations that go with it mindfulness practices yeah and then if you look at like building resilience for example which is a different muscle in the brain uh, actually takes a long time to change that so they say approximately five to six thousand hours or so to really build uh, resilience as a muscle in your brain so I believe change can happen rather quickly if we just sit our butt to it and and do it on a daily basis for a little bit of time at least. What would be the minimum um, meditation practice that you would recommend from your expertise? Um, yeah, this is a tricky one. I talked to a to a, to a person that turned to a business person that talked that became a monk for twelve years and now he's working with executives. Um, he says, start with a minute. If you can just sit down a minute and and just be focused and not think of anything, just focus on your breath. If you can do that for a minute, that's perfectly fine. It's a start. And then after six months, go to two minutes. Yeah, if you can do that, <laughs> that's great. 
Um, I'm personally, I'm trying to sit for um, at least 15 or 20 minutes, sometimes longer in the morning and, and just find my own space yeah, and have my little practice that I'm doing here. Um, if you can do that, I would recommend at least yeah, 15, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, um, personally, I've, uh, I have yeah. two questions. First, I, I, I meditate every day for almost two hours every morning, mm -hmm. uh, early, very early in the morning. But it took me actually 35 years, and I've been a meditator for 40 years, but it took me 35 mm -hmm. years to find the right teacher and the right practice. Mm -hmm. for me so what uh, what kind of uh, practice uh, or from your expertise what teacher what practice works best for you and and um, your audiences yeah it, it really depends on the personality and and the stage whether it's the beginning i know a lot of people who run so much energy that they just can't sit down for five minutes and it's very painful for those individuals so a moving meditation might work as well. So you can start with a yoga practice or and just running is the same thing. If you just focus on your breath and, and start going that way, the slow, long, long limb sports uh, being cross country skiing could be the same thing or taking a walk through the woods. If you're just focusing on your breath and what's going on, if you stay mindful, um, the practice that I like to do is some guided meditations. As I mentioned, Joe Dispenza helps do that, where you can speed up the meditation a little bit if it's too slow for you. So it might might just be 30 minutes or so. Uh, I like to do MBSR practices where you have a certain body scan, which keeps, keeps your mind occupied uh, in the beginning. Um, so MBSR practices in various ways. Uh, can you, uh, I'm familiar with that. Can you say what, a few words to MBSR? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you might be able to say more than I've, I can here. It's a mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's basically a w way the Westerners took the Eastern ways, created all kinds of research around that and found out how to um, how we can actually use meditation to improve our health, our energy, our well-being, our presence, our success um, in life, ultimately. Um, so it's, there are many MBSR practices, but it's basically, it's really to become clear in mindfulness-based. And they, they give you, uh, for example, a blueberry and you put it in your mouth and you just mindfully eat it. You, know, you just really pay attention to the texture of it, to the sweetness of it, to how it dissolves in your mouth. Basically to put your mind to what's really happening. It could just be holding a pen and while you speak, you can just feel the pen in your hand and become mindful about that thing in your hand and it puts you back into the present moment or if you sit and meditate just just do a scan through your body where you hold any tension maybe and then consciously release that tension mm -hmm. is there anything you you want to add from your side um I, <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> No, I, I, I can only think back uh, decades ago uh, when I went through this myself. Uh, but, you know, at the time, I, it was in my late 20s that I've read uh, hundreds and hundreds of books uh, mm. because and, and did, uh, you know, did all kinds of practices, traveled around the world and studied with uh, who's who uh, in this uh, field from Deepak Chopra to whomever. And uh, so, yeah, and I've now arrived to the f recognition that mindfulness is way not enough, but it's, it's just mm -hmm. a good start. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So how do you want to be remembered? What kind of impact do you want to have in the world? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure whether I want to be remembered. I'm just going into every day doing what I do because I cannot not do what I, what I do. Um, and I actually running the Conscious Business Institute, the purpose of the Conscious Business Institute is provide a better way to the way we run organizations and to ultimately transform the way we organizations. Um, but I'm not setting out to do this change um, because whenever I want to see a change, I've, I come from a perspective that something is not good enough. And when I come from that perspective that something is not good enough, I'm coming basically from the scarcity perspective, which is fear-based. Uh, and I, whenever I push something to become, I, I need to see a change here, there's always resistance because if I push something, resistance is the physical response to that. So what, what we are doing and what I'm doing every day is, is really to provide a better way to work and conduct business. A way that's more life-giving, that's ultimately more successful, that's more purpose-driven, and just an alternative to the existing model that's out there. Uh, and whenever we speak to executives and take them through our programs, they say, oh my God, I, I'd much rather take this avenue than the traditional avenue. So it's, it's really provide just an alternative route. And by that, change and transformation is the consequence that happens. But it is not the impetus for why I get up in the morning, basically. Does that make sense? <laughs> of course it does. And this is actually a beautiful way to, um, to end because it actually reminds us all, you have reminded us all, that everything is perfect as it is, including our own wish to contribute and make the world a better place. Yeah. Yes, I think we need to come from that abundance mindset. That's 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 the biggest shift that we can make from scarcity to abundance. Um, and I oftentimes get asked, maybe in closing, I oftentimes get asked, what can I do um, in, in order to make the difference that I'm here to make? How can I find out? Uh, I find that many of us are just living the same day all over again. We get up with the same foot out of the bed, we drink the same coffee, we go to the same job, we do the things. So basically, we don't live our lives, we just live the same day all over again. And for many people, that's not enough anymore. So how can we move into what we are really here to do or here to be our purpose, basically, is to, first of all, just to listen to the pains that we have uh, and follow those breadcrumbs and and know that if we are courageous enough, a new path opens up that like myself, the, the path that I was dissatisfied with the way businesses run ultimately led me to this conscious business institute. And there was a perfect breadcrumbs that I followed and eventually it happened. It just take, took courage and it took a little time. So if, if you as a listener are looking for ways to live with more impact with more purpose is to really encourage you to follow those breadcrumbs and to connect with people who've done it before well thank you so very much peter for being with us today it's been a wonderful pleasure and a great gift thank you so much thanks so much mariana wonderful to be here for more information on Peter Matis, follow him on Twitter at pmatis and visit his website consciousbusinessinstitute.com. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.